Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. It's back to school season. This week, we're getting into the spirit by talking about something very important to all of us at Scholastic, family and community engagement in schools and classrooms. Data from our recent teacher and principal school report shows that 99% of teachers and principals agree that families should be involved in their children's learning. Educators also agree that families and school staff should be equal partners in supporting student learning. There's good reason for this. Research tells us that students whose families are involved in their education do much better in school. They're more excited about learning, they have higher graduation rates, and they're more likely to go on to higher education. What does it look like when families and educators are really working together To find out, we're talking with Dr. Karen L. Mapp, Senior Lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Mapp is also co-author of a new book for educators from Scholastic, Powerful Partnerships, A Teacher's Guide to Engaging Families for Student Success. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Dana McDonough, the 2016 New York State Teacher of the Year. Dana will share some of the ways that she engages her students' families and the community in her second-grade classroom. Before we begin, a point of clarification. Dr. Mapp was recently at Scholastic for our annual National Advisory Council meeting, a day of professional learning for Scholastic employees that was themed this year around equity in education. When you hear her say, today... She's talking about discussions that took place at the meeting. Welcome to the podcast, Karen. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, First, could you tell our listeners about the genesis of your family engagement framework? So the dual capacity building framework for family school partnerships came out of some work I did for the Department of Education. I was invited by Secretary Arnie Duncan to help the department think about how they could help uh, sway or um, incentivize uh, schools and districts and even states to do better work around engaging families and supporting children's education and development. So I worked in the Office of Innovation and Improvement under the guidance of Jim Shelton, who was at the time the uh, deputy for that department. And so we first, I first went around to all the different program offices in the department. So those that work with um, English language learners, those who are working with um, adult education, uh, people who are in charge of the uh, programs for teachers and principals. And I started to hear a theme over and over again that people, it's not that they don't want to engage families. It's that in many cases, they don't know how. And because they've made mistakes or they've stumbled, a lot of times because they haven't had success, they give up and they don't think they can do it or they've convinced themselves in many cases that families, maybe they say they don't care, which we all know is not correct. 
And so what I wanted to do was to try to design something that would be used as um, guidance for those who were trying to repurpose their family engagement initiatives. And I wanted to put in that framework what we knew about best practice. And so I'm pleased to say that the dual capacity building framework has been adopted by not only districts, some states have built their family engagement policy on the dual capacity framework. And so I've been very, very excited about um, what's happened with the framework since it was launched back in 2013. That's great. I love that you draw on the wisdom of parents and families. Can you explain why that makes such a big difference? Well, families know a lot about their kids. They know a lot about their community. They know a lot about their cultural heritage. And I can't imagine that we as educators would think that we could do the best job we possibly could for children without the advice and the knowledge what we call funds of knowledge, which is a term coined by Louise Small. I don't see how we think we could do our job at 100% without their help. Uh, They know so much more about their children right off the bat that we as educators can use to be the best teachers and principals and school nurses and librarians and coaches for these kids when we have families on our team. So, uh, and I just think it's out of a deep respect that I have for families. I've talked to families over the course of the last 20 years of doing this research, and I've just learned so much about how they so care about their children and their children's education. And I'm talking about families from all different walks of life, from urban communities, rural communities, suburban communities. And they all ask me one thing, why don't educators ask us to help support our children's learning? Why do they not respect our knowledge? Why won't they tell us what we could be doing at home to help support our kids? Could you please tell them, Miss, because that's a lot of times what they say, Miss, please tell them that we really want to be engaged in our children's education. So on that score, how do you encourage or how do you advise schools to train their teachers and educators in working with families and parents? Well, I think what's been a big challenge, I I said um, earlier today in another session that um, one of my mentors, Seymour Saracen, said to me when I was president of the Institute for Responsive Education that I needed to get out of the rehab business with educators and get into the prevention business because nine times out of 10, when I ask a practitioner if they've had any uh, training in family engagement, particularly if they're teachers. I asked them about their pre-service training. Um, If they had any robust training on family engagement. And nine times out of 10, they say they've had nothing. Um, In fact, um, when I was talking with Ron Mayer today, who's here at Scholastic, he said that his son um, has graduated from a teacher ed program and his son got absolutely no advice on family engagement except for don't give the parents your home phone number. Oh, my. And so, you know, this is what we're dealing with. So what we have to do is to have an impact, first of all, on the pre-service training. Because if we start our teachers out with um, no support, then we end up with this cycle of teachers thinking that family engagement is something that they should not do. And they also learn bad habits and get into that sort of narrative that families don't care. 
So I know here at Scholastic, we have a workshop series now that I've helped to author. We found it very successful because we're using what we've learned about best practice and professional development, which is, lo and behold, if you do something interactive, and if you have people go home and practice and come back and talk about what they've learned and maybe the mistakes they've made, that's how you change people's behaviors. So we now have this wonderful workshop series that um, we insist that the people who come to the series, it has to be a school team because the other thing is, is that schools change when you have a nice uh, cohort of people going through the work and supporting the work. The principal has to be a member of that team because the school leader really leads the charge on family engagement. And so um, we're really seeing some wonderful changes happen at these schools. They've really repurposed a lot of what they used to do on family engagement and aligned it, in fact, to what we've learned from effective practice that's in the dual capacity framework. That's terrific to hear. At the conference at Scholastic earlier today, you said you're passionate about putting the public back in public education. Mm-hmm. Can you tell our listeners what you mean by that mm-hmm. exactly? Mm-hmm. Well, somewhere along the line, and I don't know quite when this happened, because I do think when I hear stories from some of my wonderful mentors, they tell me how sometimes they'll start by saying, back in the day, <laughs> right, uh, we used to do home visits all the time. Back in the day, Uh, families used to come in and and give us advice about our curriculum. Well, somehow, somewhere, we got away from that. And we started to think that, you know, we educators should push the parents out and they should be at the, you know, periphery of the schools. And that we knew everything and we were the experts and we were going to tell them what to do and talk to them and not with them. And so we have to go back to... Um, a place and space where the public really took charge and was involved very much in the reform of our schools. My good friend and colleague, Andres Alonso, former uh, chancellor of the Baltimore City Schools, talks about this notion of the authorizing environment. And he says that, you know, when did we begin to think that the authorizing environment for education was just being held by the educators? The authorizing environment has to include the community because they they lift up the schools. They're the ones that long after we've gone on to another job will hold us accountable and also continue with the initiatives that we may have started. If we don't include them, they can't support those initiatives because they're not a part of it. So, uh, again, it's this whole idea of our communities and our families being co-producers and co-creators with us of these kinds of environments that we want for our kids. Our kids are only in school about, hmm, I'd say 20% of any given year. What about the other 80? So if we don't engage our families and community in what we're trying to do in terms of student achievement and, and student development, then I don't know how we expect it to happen when, you know, the impact or the dosage only happens 20% of a child's life. It doesn't make any sense. Right. What's your best advice for teachers who, let's say, they're going into the classroom tomorrow? How can they change and wake up and say, let me shift my thinking on family engagement? Well, one thing they can do is to start off with positive communication between themselves and the families of the children that they serve. Many times what I hear and what I've seen, actually, because I was deputy superintendent for family and community engagement in Boston— Uh, in 2003, I would see that the first communication home 
many times was the del- was delivering some sort of bad news. Uh, it may have been about a behavioral problem, or maybe it was about some other thing around the academics. But what teachers could do is to really be intentional right at the beginning of the school year with reaching out to their families to say, you know, Mrs. Jones or Mr. Jones, I'm your child's fourth grade teacher. Or even, you know, I, I have high school teachers who will do this with the entering class, so with their ninth grade students that are coming in, because to do it with every family is sometimes overwhelming, although I know teachers that do do that too. They just spend the time. But when that family hears you call home to say welcome, welcome to, to my classroom, um, you know, I just want to introduce myself to you. I want you to know that I really value family engagement. And I will be calling you during the year, and it won't just be with bad news. It'll be for us to engage in a conversation. If you can start the relationship on a positive note, that really just says a lot to families. And in fact, you know, we do have a book now, Powerful Partnerships, where um, myself, Eileen Carver, and Jessica Lander, uh, both teachers, uh, we've written a book that will be uh, for teachers about engaging families. And so one of the things we do talk about in the beginning of the book is, you know, about the, the power of building the relationship of trust and respect. And so anything that you can do, and we give teachers all sorts of strategies to do that, but anything you can do to start off on the right foot instead of, you know, starting with something negative is really, really important. And what about parents? How would you encourage or empower them to have a voice in, if they feel neglected or shut out by their child's school? Well, you know, I do think that the school has to be the one to take the first step, especially with a lot of our families who are feeling overwhelmed, who are feeling intimidated by school. You know, we have families now who are undocumented, who feel scared to death to even come out of their house. So it really is going to take the school, I think, and the staff to do the outreach A lot of families have been pushed away from the schools. Uh, Maybe they had bad experiences themselves. Maybe they worked two or three jobs. And so I I do think that the school has to do the initial outreach, the, the, the staff, the principal. And a lot of times that unlocks the power of families. And once they start to hear that we value their voice, they start to say, hey, you know, I, I, I guess I can come to that meeting, or maybe I could run for the school site council, or Maybe I might even run for the school board because we've had families that have made that kind of transformation all because someone at the school said, you know, I really see potential in you. Why don't you come on in and why don't you try this? Okay, so uh, we did a study, Mark Warner and myself, with a bunch of fabulous doctoral students. We did a book called A Match on Dry Grass, which is about six community organizing groups around the country who do both youth and parent organizing. And there's so many stories in there about how when you Give parents a little support and maybe push them outside of their comfort zone a little bit, but they have the support of a staff member, or in this case, maybe a teacher, how they just blossom. So, uh, you know, I, that's the population that I really work with, that I'm, I'm very intentional about trying to cultivate that kind of parent voice. I think for a lot of our families who already have voice and already have that kind of social capital, it's easier for them. But um, again, if we're going to put the public back in public education, We have to let the public know that we want them and that we invite them to be engaged. Karen, are there concrete examples that you could cite of positive effects in districts where you've seen your framework at 
at work? Well, we we now have about, it's got to be now about 50 years of research that links family engagement with student outcomes, like higher grades and test scores. They start reading much earlier. These are kids that like school. Attendance rates go up. These are kids that do take advantage of um, AP and honors courses. These are students who also go on to post-secondary opportunities. But we now also have research about the benefits for schools and for teachers. So the Chicago Consortium on School Research has done some extensive studies where they were able to identify what they call the five essential supports. And one of those five supports, and these are the kinds of things you need for your school to improve. So they talk about you need a strong leader, you need strong staff, you need the culture of the school to be about the kids, so student-centered. The staff has to have good professional development, but one of the other key ingredients is family and community ties. And so their argument basically was that without family engagement, your school's not going to improve. So now we know that it's not just beneficial to the students. We also know that you have to have it as a part of your core instructional strategies, what I emphasize now. So no longer is family engagement this sidebar thing that you can do when you feel like it, because we usually don't because we run out of time. If we insert it into what we define as proficient practice, proficient instruction, then we see that it actually gets done. We also know that teachers stay in schools where there's strong family engagement because the culture is fabulous. They have all of these partners, right? So we've seen absolutely fabulous initiatives in many districts around the country, in Seattle, in the Tacoma area, um, in uh, D.C., Baltimore, Boston, Cleveland, um, in Pinellas County, Florida. So more and more districts are starting to see that family engagement is a systemic strategy to improve their schools. Great. Thank you so much, Karen. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. For more information about Dr. Mapp's new book, Powerful Partnerships, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Now we have Dana McDonough, the 2016 New York State Teacher of the Year, with us in the studio. Dana teaches second grade in Newburgh, New York, and is a firm believer in the importance of involving the community in her students' education. It's wonderful always to have a teacher, but a teacher of the year. Let's start off with how do you build a connection with your students' families? Each year when I get my children, I kind of try to get a feel of their background. I contact all the parents during the summer of each year to see, you know, just get a feel for the family, get them to get to know me. Mm-hmm. And see, then I get to meet the children. And based on, um, you know, when they come in the room, um, my classroom is just a has a tremendous library. I've been to your classroom and it is yes. so such a <laughs> colorful, wonderful, welcoming place Thank with you. so many books. Thank you. And I have just built a tremendous library with all a variety of books. I um, introduce them to several genre, all the genres. Uh-huh. Um, get them turned on because you never know what's going to turn a child on. So by having um, a tremendous library and making it accessible to families to have that connection with home saying, if you need materials, they're here for you. So um, that connection 
starts to build a bond and a trust where the parents are willing to come in and say, you know, I need, I need books. Or if I know when I get my class list, I see if the children who may not be at grade level, I will obviously call the parents, but I will reach out to them first to see if they need anything over the summer. I also send my current students off in June with any information about the library summer program. So I do make a lot of attempts and open to new suggestions to turn my kids into reading. In the fall, I had the librarian come and do a presentation of library cards so that all the children have a library card within my room. I know that reading aloud is very important in your classroom. Can you tell us some of the special things you do to get your students excited about reading aloud and how you involve their families? I also provide opportunities for parents to come in as mystery readers. Oh, neat. And they um, are surprised, obviously, of who's coming in. And they are exposed to at least one mystery reader a week. So you're talking um, 40 weeks of school. So they have those 30, 40, 50 books extra within the classroom year. It's supposed to be a mystery to the children. So I begin the day with all the children standing. I have about four clues of who um, the mystery reader is going to be. So it might start with, my son is this in this room, so the girls all sit. And then there's very specific clues. So by the end, that one child is standing knowing it's their parent, their grandparent. I've had um, babysitters come in, family, friends. I encourage, I try to encourage everyone to visit once for their child because there is nothing like the spark in their face when they see someone that represents them in that classroom. So when they come in, um, the kids, the child will introduce them to the classroom, even if they know them. Um, I teach them, you know, that they take their coat, whatever the case may be, and go and sit. And they sit side by side. Um, we take a picture of, you know, them together. And then the um, adult will read the story. And then the children will ask the adult. In fact, we had one yesterday. And the kids started to raise their hand. And he said, what's this all about? And he said, I wasn't prepared for questions. But the kids <laughs> want to know why they picked the book. What genre is it? I, they ask, they've learned to ask what piece of pie we'll be eating, persuasion, informative, or um, entertain. Um, we have a, an anchor chart, you know, and so that they're familiar with the genres. And it's just, it's just a really nice, intimate event. Sometimes they'll bring a special snack that kind of matches the story. I had a little girl who read, if you give a mouse a cookie, and she brought in the big cookie to share after. So, um, you know, it, we try to make it, like an event. And yes, these things take time from the curriculum, but these are the things they remember. Absolutely. And the mystery reader has to be on their toes, huh? They do. They do. <laughs> and then at the end of the week, I send home um, a email to all the parents, besides the pictures that have gone home on a day-to-day -day basis, of what we've done during the week. Because I encourage them, you know, the author, you know, lists the book, with the, who the author was, why the children enjoyed the story. So to encourage, maybe they'll go out and get that book or, you know, maybe another book from that author. And the other thing that I promote in my classroom is something called Royal Reader that I designed. Um, I was in England on a trip, and I was standing in front of Buckingham Palace. And I every year I try to think of something different for my children to do. And I was standing in front of Buckingham Palace, and I thought, wait a minute, crown, scepter, cape. So I thought, wouldn't it be neat to bring this into my classroom? So I purchased a, a crown, a cape, and a scepter, and the kids, there's criteria. 
they have to have mastered the book. So I send out an open house that I have the Royal Reader. Parents are pretty f- familiar with Mr. Reader, but Royal Readers is something new. It's I, I designed it, so it's not in any other classroom. So I explain it to the parents that it's something um, the children pick the book. I don't care if it's a baby book, Pat the Bunny, Good Night Moon, anything that they truly love or that they want to master for the class. So I set the criteria that they have to come in ready to read a book um, fluently. I do, I'm part of the audience. I don't sit there. I don't assist because I want them to have the full confidence. So they sit there with their robe, their sep- their crown and their scepter, and they have their royal subjects in front of them and they read the book. I can tell you almost hundred percent they've, it, they're ready. And, um, they are so proud. <laughs> and some of the children who are truly shy, they may wait, um, to do it till the, towards the end of the year, but to get those children that sometimes are the struggling readers and to get up in front of that classroom with confidence, it's a huge, huge success. The smiles are amazing. I take lots of pictures. I class dojo them to the parents after the reading's done. They get a tiny uh, Royal Reading Library license, a, a, <laughs> a proclamation from my classroom, and a certificate. I should have brought them down today. Yeah, but um, I. it's just... An amazing, another amazing way for children to enjoy reading and to be in front of their peers and proud of what they're doing. Aww. And then they have to, then the kids get to ask them questions like, why did you choose that book? What is your favorite part? You know, so they, it's a question and answer as well. So um, it's a really, really popular thing for my room. It sounds like it really in, involves the parents as well, which is such an important Right, because they have to help prepare their child. Uh, and you must encourage them to read to their children oh, at I home, do. I'm sure. I do. I give them different options of things that they can do at home um, to encourage reading, which, again, um, it, for the families where there might be a language barrier or um, they don't have the materials in the home, I try to encourage them to ask you know, just to extend that offer of, um, you know, encouraging them to ask me if they need something. If they're going to be a Mr. Reader, they would love to be, but they don't have any books that they, I will send some home in a brown envelope so the kids don't see it. Um, I also, they are gifts that I give my children at the holiday time. And at the end of the year, I send them home with books, you know, as to encourage the reading at home as well. What percentage of your students would you say visit the public library on a weekly basis? I would say it's probably a very small percentage. Mm -hmm. It's in the city of Newburgh. Um, I know that when the librarian comes to present the library cards in October, I would say I'm probably giving out about eight. I have 26 students. I would say I'm, I'm giving out between 19 and 20 library cards new. Some have them. And I know when she comes in, I would say maybe three or four know who she is. So I wouldn't say it's a large percentage. Um, When I I assign projects to the children, I encourage them to go to the library, and I know some of them do. But this is going to be the first year. Each year I try to do something new. This is going to be the first year I'm actually going to invite the parents and the children to the public library. We're going to have a nighttime event, story time, light refreshments, and we're going to donate a book to the uh, shelter, the women's shelter, and again, encourage them to use their library card that night together. I want to be in your classroom. (laughs) (laughs) Now, just as every student is unique, I know every family is unique and everyone has different needs. How do you connect with everyone? I think we need 
to f- make every family feel valued and give them the supports they need if they don't. I mean, parents who are speaking one language and their children are speaking English and learning English in school, there's that barrier and we need to find a way to reach those parents because they send their best child to school every day and they want the best for their students. And you want to honor the culture and language of the home as well. And learn from it. And learn from it. Do students bring in stories about countries their parents are from? We, we do. Make, I do make it a point to find out where their uh, family's heritage is from. And I'm going to tell you, yesterday when I was reading the story about the rooster, uh, there were some Spanish words in it. And one little girl who's Hispanic, she said to me, how do you know those words? And she was so, like, when I read with the ESL teacher, her and I sometimes team read together, they love when they hear their language. They sparkle because it's saying what's happening at home is I'm hearing it in my classroom. That connection is huge. And I try my best to find literature that will reach those students. We have an event at school, a Polar Express event, where I find that us Spanish version as well, they need to know that their heritage is valued in the classroom as well. So uh, any way that I can connect to the kids and reach the family, I'm all about it. It's magic. And how does your school as a whole approach the challenge of family and community engagement? Scholastic recently did, as you may know, a teachers and um, principal survey, mm-hmm. and we found that the family engagement component is a big challenge. How does your school address that? Well, each Do teacher you- will have their own way of reaching their families, but we also have science nights. We have math nights uh, that we have a PTO organization that tries to reach out to parents and We have a community field trip. My kids visit Washington's headquarters, the mayor's office, the fire department. So we reach out into the community too. Uh, So it's, as a young teacher, it was all about the classroom and the kids. And then I realized the families need, we need the families. We also need the community. The community needs to know what's going on. We've just implemented a process called the leader in me. And it's a process where each child is developing themselves as leaders and community is being brought in to see what's going on. Because when you go to community leaders, what are you looking for in your graduates? It's not, oh, they got the best math scores. It's what kind of character are they? You know, what do they have to offer? Because a child can be the brightest child, but if they don't know what to do with that, they don't know how to help others, what good is all of it? So they have to realize their place in a community, what they're able to give back. So they need to see how I think the school's a perfect example. It's a haven to show children how it all works. Yes. Great. An open door policy. My, uh, I've just got a letter from the Port Authority that my class is invited to Stewart Airport as behind the scenes look. Again, another community resource. You know, there are opportunities, but you have to look for them. I have built my repertoire of community. Um, if I had a firefighter one year, that, that child, just because the child left me, can, can you come back? The librarian, the mayor. I mean, just, I have like this little pool of um, people that I can go to. And I encourage young teachers because I speak to young teachers or um, students in college that are going to, in the prep programs, that that piece is very important. And that every year, try something new. Try to extend your reach. 
Uh, last year, my, it was the first year that I reached out to Home Depot to come in and um, help us build little toolkits for Father's Day. So each year I try something new, try to reach out in one other way. Um, so it it gives the kids a chance to see they belong to something bigger than the four walls of the classroom. Wonderful. Thank you so very much, Dana. You're very welcome. Thanks again to our guests, Karen and Dana, for talking with us. And thank you for joining us. To learn more about the importance of family and community engagement in the classroom, check the links in our show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. We hope that everyone has a rewarding school year. Help us make our podcast even more valuable to you. Please take our survey at scholasticreads.com. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow, sound engineers Daniel Jordan and Chris Johnson, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads with you next time. <laughs>